Hello, my friends. It's Ryan from the Prolific Creator Podcast. Now, many of you have asked, hey, Ryan, how do I support the show? Well, I finally listened. Starting today, you can subscribe to the Prolific Creator Plus on ACAST Plus for $3 a month. That's less than a cup of coffee. No apps to download and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Get access to the entire archive of Prolific Creator Awesomeness. Over 160 episodes going back to 2017. Yes, that's right, my friends. A plethora of information and inspiration, tips, tricks, and interviews to get your art and work into the world. Remember those ads? Say bye, bye, bye. Wait, there's more. For $5 a month, you can get access to the full prolific creator experience. This includes the full archives, early access to episodes, listener Q&A, book and movie reviews, and interviews not for the public, and perhaps any other awesomeness I might do on the microphone. Sounds awesome, right? Yeah, it does, Ryan. If you want to listen for free, you'll notice the last 50 episodes or so will always be available wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember, by subscribing today, you don't have to download any new apps, and you can simply keep listening on the podcast platform you prefer. Cool. Okay. Cool. Thanks for your love and support in advance. Simply click on the link in the show notes or on my website, and it'll take you where you need to go. Now on to the show. Prolific Writer Podcast, episode number, wait for it, 33. Welcome to the Prolific Writer Podcast, where speed's the name of the game. Follow an indie author and publisher and his guests as they share inspiration, tips, and advice on writing fast, writing often, and writing well, so you can do the same. Here's Ryan. Welcome, welcome. This is your host, Ryan J. Pelton, and I am really glad that you're here. The Prolific Writer Podcast. Yeah, this is my podcast. Thank you for coming, however you came. The podcast dedicated... dedicated dedicated, that's a word, to writing fast often. And well, we are glad you found us, however you found us. And just want to say, first off, thank you everyone that has commented on the show, reviewed the show, said really nice things. It makes me feel really nice and gushy inside. Gushy, is that a word? Gushy. Gives me nice feelings in my belly region. And today we're going to give you a lot of nice things in your belly region because I am privileged to have one of my virtual distant mentors, Dean Wesley Smith, USA Today, New York Times, all the lists, best-selling author has come on the show to inspire us, encourage us. And Dean and I have a great conversation about the myths of writing it's something he loves to talk about and the myths of publishing. And if you followed, have followed Dean Wesley Smith on his blog, DeanWesleySmith.com, you've probably learned a lot from him. And he's given back so much to the indie community, the writing community. Uh, he's written hundreds, literally hundreds of novels, which is unbelievable. Hundreds of short stories. And the things he shares are so helpful because he's an actually working actual working writer who's been doing it for 35, 40 years and the insights and the principles and the things he shares are really, really helpful. So you are in for a treat today and he was so gracious to come on this show. Um, a nobody 
show. Um, a nobody person. I reached out to him. He said, Hey, I'd love to come on the show. Um, I've taken some of his lectures, some of his classes that he offers online. If you haven't had a chance, please check out his website, DeanWesleySmith.com. I'll put it in the show notes too. And you're going to love this episode. Uh, so much content, so much information, wherever you are in your writing journey, you're going to grab something and be helped tremendously. And so I don't want to say any more. I want to get right to the interview with Dean Wesley Smith. Never has the story of the old glory needed introduction or induction. Well, hey, welcome everybody to the Prolific Writer Podcast. I am privileged today to have on the line Dean Wesley Smith, who is a USA Today bestselling author. He's been around the game, the writing game for a long time, helped a lot of writers, and I'm really privileged to have him on the show today. So say hello, Dean. Oh, well, hi. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, Dean is the epitome of the prolific writer, and um, he would humbly say, oh, shucks, oh, golly, but um, <laughs> he has written hundreds of novels and hundreds of short stories, so I would say, by definition, he is a prolific writer, um, and so excited to have you on the on the the uh, show today, Dean, because this really this podcast is kind of inspired by some of your work and uh, especially some of the work you've done, uh, kind of unearthing the myths of writing and the myths of publishing. And I found those really helpful and many people have too. And uh, so I want to talk a little bit about those today, um, but also just sure. talk a little bit about one of the things I love that you do. And I learned this a long time ago was one of the best ways to hold yourself accountable is to do something in public. Um, so rather than just tell yourself, you know, hey, I'm going to write these many words or I'm going to, you know, train for a marathon, I'm actually going to do it in public. And you started writing in public, showing people that being prolific is possible with a full-time job, with life, with all the other stuff. So so talk a little bit about the genesis of your writing in public uh, story. Yeah, it, it actually started um, as a lark. Um, I had a um, it was the very last project I was ever hired for traditional publishing. And I'd already basically was out of all the I, I sold over 100 and some books in traditional publishing over all those years. And um, um, it was the last thing. It was a ghost novel. Um, they had hired me. They I had said no. Originally, they asked they threw more money at me. And eventually, you know, I can be bought. And um, <laughs> but I don't start writing until they actually pay me the first half. That's just a rule with traditional publishing I learned a very long time ago, and especially with a book that I wasn't technically going to own. It was going to be a ghost book. you know. Um, and so the they stalled for a, quite a while. And by that point, I was already into, you know, solidly into the indie side. Um, Chris and I were building up quite a bit in um, 2009, 2010, and I didn't want to do this book anymore. But I'd already agreed, and they had signed the contract, but I didn't have any money yet. So I said, well, anytime you guys are in a hurry, um, anytime you get that in, you know, send me, the, send me the half of the money that we have agreed on, and I will start writing for you, and I'll have it for you quickly. Because um, they were all in a hurry. They needed it quick, you know, tr- figure traditional publishing type of thing. <laughs> and, um, and so they finally got it. And I said, well, what the heck? If I'm going to write this thing, I'm, I'm going to show people that I can do this out in public. Now, I can't tell anybody what the name of the book was. Um, I just said, I'm going to write this 70,000-word novel in seven days. And I fired it up and, and did what I did every day like I'm doing now for this uh, four novels in one month 
um, thing I'm doing right now. And I just basically just detailed it out for a week and said, well, this is what I did. I actually turned all the blog posts into a book on how to write a novel in seven days or 10 days. I think I did it in 10 days is what I said, how to write a novel in 10 days. And, um, and that was, that was what I did. And it was very easy and I had fun with it. And I got this enormous feedback, um, from doing it. There were so many writers, which I had not dawned on me that this was going to be revel, you know, kind of reveal a whole bunch of behind the scenes secrets of just what I do every day, what other writers, professional writers do every day. We just kind of ding along and get it done. And so that's how it started. And then when I started Smith's Monthly, my uh, monthly magazine, where I do a novel and four or five short stories every month, and I did that four years ago, I decided to just start a blog streak of talking about what I'm doing. And um, and I've been doing that now for almost four years, four years as of August 1st, actually. Um, and so it's just it's just kind of what I do along the way. Got some books out of it. Got some nonfiction books out of it. Yeah. No, they're, sure. they're great. Yeah. And and I think what you're doing, and, and I know it's intentional and a little bit unintentional, unintentional for those mm-hmm. that, that read it, is you're kind of pulling back the curtain and, and just showing how this is possible. And so the, the other part, and I think I mentioned this, the other part is you, you run a publishing company and you also run, you have stores and you have businesses and you have a life and you have a wife and, you know, and yep. you're, you're also showing you're not just sitting around in your underwear, just writing all day either. Oh yeah, no. <laughs> and, um, um, so I'm, I'm causing all kinds of chaos continuously of, but we got to do this. What about this? This will, you know, <laughs> and, and so they call it, my nickname is the chaos demon. Chris's, Chris's nickname is God. Um, basically <laughs> he sort of runs everything from that, but we really are hands off on the company. Allison runs the company. Allison, does all the books, which has almost 700 titles now. And we sell our books to WMG. And then also WMG Publishing has two brick-and-mortar stores um, here in Lincoln City, um, tourist types of stores with collectibles. And I go out and all the collectibles, my stuff. And I go out and do a lot of picking and finding things for the stores and you know selling stuff to the stores, things like that. So, yeah, I'm doing stuff all the time. Plus, I do all the workshops. Yeah. You know, that, that, that takes a lot of time every week. Yep. And so, yeah, you're teaching, you're, you're doing all these things. And, and I, you know, and you've been very candid about, Hey, I don't have kids, you know, and yep. you know, that does free up some time, but, but I think it's also just encouraging as people listen to the show and many people that I've interviewed uh, to, to say, Hey, it's, it's possible that you can produce a lot of work sure. and you don't have to be a, you know, and the other thing I was going to add is, you don't you always talk about this. Uh, you don't have to be a fast typist. Now I think that's oh. one, one of the myths. Oh. Um, yeah, <laughs> you talk. You talk about your hunting and pecking and your forefinger technique, and you know you don't you don't type five thousand words a, an hour. Oh no! Oh no! I'm 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 I'm. Chris now tells me I'm at six fingers um, <laughs> because she came in when I was finishing something. I said, "Hang on," and and I finished, and she said, "All right, you're getting you're getting three fingers on each hand involved now." And I'm like, "Yay!" <laughs> so, I mean, no, I'm very I'm I'm probably you know a thousand to fifteen hundred words an hour at most. But the key is is um, what's called prolific is means you just spend more time. You have a better work ethic. And uh, for me to do these four novels in one month, basically I'm trying to do six hours a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's not even an eight-hour day. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing, you know, the WMG and, and all the teaching and everything else, which actually takes a lot more time than I'm actually spending time writing. Um, and so it's just – no, it's, it's just the math. You just figure out how, much, how many words you can write in an hour if you get out of your own way, mm-hmm. get all the myths kicked out. And, um, you know, 
and and have fun with it. That's the key. Have fun. And you also just recently went to Las Vegas and uh, wrote a book, a novel in five days. Yeah. Yep. Say, say a little bit about that. Well, it was. It, I, I had always said when Chris and I were traveling a lot to conferences and being guests of honor at places over the years that I could never write while I was traveling. And so I kind of had that as a mantra. I can't write while I'm traveling. And I got I kind of got tired of hearing myself say that. So I was going to go down to Vegas and, and spend time with four friends of mine who are attorneys and judges. And we play poker for a week or four days, five days down there. And, uh, and I wanted to go down and spend some time with them. And I thought, well, to heck with this. Why don't I, when I'm in Vegas, I'll just write this novel while I'm there. And it was, it's one of my cold poker gang novels, which is our very complex cold case mystery novels, very twisted. And I, and I never plot. I never do anything ahead of time. I just sit down, write the first line and see where it goes. And cause I have to entertain myself. I have a very low threshold of entertainment. <laughs> And so we, I basically went down there. I did some blogs on the way down. I drove down, had my computer with me, my big computer. I put it in a seatbelt on the back seat, my big, big, huge Mac. And, um, and then um, got down there, set it up in a nice desk, got myself all squared away, and just fired up on the novel on the next day. I had no planning. I knew it was going to be a cold poker gang novel because those are set in Vegas. And I went, eh, why not? Let's set one in Vegas. And I wrote it in five days while playing tournaments and having dinners with my friends and just playing and then i put out the book which actually is the lead up to it the five days and the cool down as i'm driving home and it's called how to write a book how to write a novel in five days that's great it's one of my mysteries great yeah i love it and and again i think you're what you're doing is you're just kind of pulling back the curtain and just showing that you know writing isn't some kind of magic it's no you know math (laughs) yeah right it's It's actually just math if you spend x number of hours and you can write at this x number of speed x number of words per hour you get x number of of pages done (laughs) right (laughs) it's just math and I, i remember years ago i don't remember what the context was it might have been on a podcast or something but i heard you talking and you said you have something funny about well if you know, the words don't work out. I just erase them and just write more. They're just words. I mean, you, you just kind of have this this perspective. Yeah. It's like, why are we obsessing? They're just words. It's just a story. It's no big deal. Just get over it. Yeah. Oh, I do that. I do that all the time. I always write down um, because I was trained with traditional. My mind goes back to the 50s and 60s and 70s kind of books that are 40, 50,000 words long. Those are the ones I love to read. I grew up reading in the 50s and 60s. And I just that's where my mind is. Well, as a traditional writer, because traditional publishing had to start charging more for books to cover their overhead, they started forcing writers to write longer and longer through the 70s, 80s, and into the 90s. And that's how this long books and phenomenon came about, where you would get 100,000 words or 90,000 words. The only way you can do that when your mind works at the 50,000-word level for a story is put loops in, where the characters go off the main plot line, go off and do something, and then come right back to the same spot they were. And those those are called traditional publishing loops. All traditional publishing writers knew how to do that. It's how we lengthen the books up to contract length, uh-huh. because the public it, it had nothing to do with the story. It has only to do with publishers needed more to charge more for their books, and this happened over about a thirty year period. And I was right through the whole period as I was writing. I sold my first short story in seventy four, and you know, and 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 went from there through this whole period. So I watched it happen. Well, when I got to indie publishing, I could go back to my normal length. That fits my mind. But every so often, I'll, I'll do one of those loops. I'll just be typing along and find myself right back to where I was 6,000 words earlier. And I go, 
did anything happen in that loop at all? Nope, that's a traditional publishing loop, and I just cut it out, throw the words away. Mm. Uh, I, have, I have no problem with it. Um, you know, I don't need my books to be longer or shorter or anything else. I just write until the story's done, and then it's done, and mm-hmm. whatever length it is is what it is. Mm-hmm. And well, then I write something new. No, and, yeah. and that's what's really insightful when people listen to you and read your blog is is that you unearth some of these things because you're you've been in it, you've been through it. Um, I it's funny I, you're talking about this. I just was reading a Lee Child novel, and I, I like Lee Child. I think he's a good writer, but oh, yeah, great um, writer. But you know, he's four hundred, five hundred page long, and and literally, I'm reading this story, and all of a sudden, the character just goes off to like another state for <laughs> you know pages and pages, and you're just like that didn't need to be in there <laughs> you know it yeah. di- didn't help the story it didn't make it even that interesting and then he comes back and nothing really happened and the case still keeps going on and then he does something else you know and, yeah. and you just wonder you know is that part of that whole traditional mindset yeah that's that's loading the out a book you know those are those are the traditional the, that that all developed in the last the the real interesting fact is is the new generation coming up now is used to the longer books mm-hmm. so they're used to reading these loops to them they're normal and, you know, to those of us who, you know, read back and you can find blog, you can find Google um, posts and blog posts about how the classic books all through time were always, you know, much shorter, mm-hmm. uh, you know, down in the 20, 30, 40,000 word range. Um, and so it's been really interesting to to see the new generation struggle with trying to write these things and not know how to do these loops um, and make the loops interesting enough to, to go on. Um, you know, it's just, it was really easy in media because when I was writing Star Trek or Men in Black or, you know, or Spider-Man, those novels, those, you can always have the character, you know, get in a fight somewhere and go off in a loop and it feels like it belongs there. Mm-hmm. Um, but in some books, you just, it's, it's a struggle and you can notice them like you did in that Lee Childs. You can see these loops going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. It just. So let's, um. Just before we get in, I want to get in a couple of these myths that I have written out here, uh-huh. and um, and these are always really interesting. I think are going to help a lot of people. But before we do that, I'm I find your story interesting because um, I'd love for you just to give a just a brief background of how you got into writing because you're kind of like the accidental creative <laughs> creative. You know, you you golf. You were a golfer at one time. Yeah. Uh, law school architect poker player. I mean, I love your story. You just, you've been all over the place. You're kind of like, you know, I always think of like Forrest Gump, you know, kind of done everything. Oh, yeah. Um, That's, that's my short attention span. That's the problem. (laughs) But, but I love your story because it's very honest that you just don't look at writing as this, again, like this muse just shows up in your bedroom and with, you know, and a unicorn comes and, you know, blows on you. It's like, you just, you learned how to just write and get your work out there and, you know, Highlands rules. We can talk about that a little bit later, but, you know, just talk a little bit about just how you kind of stumbled into writing yourself. Oh, I was, I was, a I started off as a, as a skier. I was in the early days of freestyle skiing, which is what in my time was called hot dogging. And, um, we, you know, in the first in the first year or two of that, I skied with all those guys and was involved with that. And I got, you know, a ten- short attention span problem. And also I loved it too much. And I knew that I, I had to do something different with my life. So I, I just quit skiing one spring when spring when skiing was done and moved to Los or to Palm Springs, California. And ended up becoming a golf professional, a PGA golf professional, <laughs> and played some of the smaller tour stops, tried to be a qualifier on the thing, you know, just did all of that sort of stuff. And, of course, after three years of doing that and drinking and doing nothing but hitting golf balls, I got bored with that, too, um, and decided I better get back to college. And because and, I had 
dropped out of college. I'd sort of signed up in college to stay out of Vietnam and, and literally had more Fs on my transcripts than I ever want to think about or look at now because I just never went. I went skiing instead. I signed up for college and went skiing. <laughs> and um, not, not a plan I would recommend for anybody. Um, so when I went back to college, it was difficult to get in. But I managed to wiggle around through a whole bunch of holes and get back in. And I got a master's degree in architecture because my thinking was, oh, I could be a golf course architect. That was my thinking. And as I got closer and closer to the end of that master's, and I did my master's actually on golf course architecture, um, I realized that there was a lot of other issues involved with engineering and architecture. And I thought, wow, I'm, I have this master's in architecture. I could be, wouldn't it be cool if I was a lawyer and could do that? And so my short attention span took me over to law school. <laughs> and I went through three years of law school um, before I got right to the very last finals of my last semester and went, I really am never going to be an attorney. And uh, so I just walked into the office and said, bye, guys. And, uh, of course, everybody tried to talk me out of that. But I just walked out of that after three years because I had the knowledge, didn't need the degree, didn't need the, uh, didn't need the responsibility of being an attorney. Wow. And at that point, I was writing short stories. And it, I had just stumbled on them because I started writing poetry for a 101 class in architecture, a 101 English that I had to have the prerequisite. And this poor woman, this teacher, um, made all of her students mail to a contest called College Poets something. And she made us, which I really admire for, she made us mail and then show her the rejection slip. <laughs> <laughs> well, the problem was I got second place in the contest. Uh. She'd never had a student. And I was getting beat up over there in the English department. I mean, I was, one person said, oh, you're way too commercial. And I'm like, yeah, that sort of went in. Um, and, um, and so I ended up getting second place in this contest. Um, and from that point on, I was pretty much hated in the English department, even though I kept showing up and taking classes from the architecture department. And, uh, I just did a whole bunch, sold about 50, 60 poems over a space of about a year to literary magazines and all the top magazines. And then, and they were all very commercial, very goofy. And I thought, Oh, I should try to write a short story. So I wrote, Two short stories, real quick, no rewrites, no nothing, about a thousand words each, mailed them, sold them both. And at that point, I went, oh, I wonder what I should be doing. And that's when I hit the rewrite myth. And the rewrite myth got a hold of me, the polish myth, all of that crap. I mean, I just sold two short stories to major magazine. And suddenly, I'm thinking, oh, I should rewrite these. And from that point on, for seven years, I didn't sell anything. Didn't sell a word. The minute I started rewriting, I dumbed my stuff down. I ruined it, took the voice out, all the stuff that was me. I just polished it down to a polished rock, and um, and that was the end of it. And so when I finally got through that phase is when I actually went to Heinlein's Rules and said, that's it. No more rewriting. No more. This is what I'm going to do. And then I started selling again. <laughs> Never looked back. Okay. So. Yeah, and that's that's a little bit of my entry point into your um, career about probably five or six years ago. Um, my own just starting out rewriting, 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 polishing, 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 never sharing anything, never publishing anything, never yep. do, doing anything, um, just polishing a turd basically. And, um, <laughs> yeah. and that's an Alge, that's an Algis Budras saying. By oh, the is way. it okay? Yeah, I know yeah. I've heard it somewhere, and I'm like, I love yeah. that saying. I say that all the time to other writers, yeah. but. Um, but you've kind of, you know, found your own way, and, and obviously your wife, uh, Christine, has 
um, you know, written a ton of things, you know, mm-hmm. won awards. You both have won awards, you know, editors, you've done all this. Um, and you've really come alongside, especially now in the new indie world, uh, to kind of kind of unmask and unearth and show and share your experiences that um, I think a lot of writers still uh, still are struggling with these things. So so let's talk oh. talk about you. You talked about one. Um, we'll just start with the one you already mentioned, rewriting. So how do you define that or, or what, what was kind of the, the gate that opened for you with the rewriting myth? Well, the, the Heinlein's rule, rule number three, you ne- never rewrite unless the editorial demand. And then Harlan added an addition to that. Harlan Ellison said, and then only if you agree with the editor, because um, Harlan you know, was notorious. Harlan, of course, never rewrite. Heinlein never rewrote, um, no matter what he said in his later years. Um, you know, Silverberg, all the guys who, that I grew up with, they never rewrote anything. Um, what rewriting is, is when you go back and in critical, the, you create a story in creative voice. It's like a little two-year-old in the back of your head. And you create and have fun with the story and you make it up and it's a cool story. And it's got you in it, you, your voice, you, the author. It's got your character voice. It's just cool. The problem is, is that writers have been trained to write sloppy in first draft. And that's where the mistake is made. And it comes in from, I mean, NaNoWriMo um, is, has got a lot of good things about it, but this writing, fast writing sloppy is, is really deadly because then you got to go back and fix all your slop. And when you fix it, you do it from critical voice. And your critical voice is all your English teachers and all those people in there. And so suddenly you're like bringing a committee in. And we all know what committees can do to something original. You know, you bring a committee in on your original work and they just dumb it down. And um, um, that's why the rule is you don't rewrite unless to editorial demand and then only if you agree. Um, You just – what I do, my personal method is – is I have everything turned off, you know, grammar and spell checker turned off. So nothing gets in the, hits the critical voice at all. And then when I get through a document, that's my first draft and I'm done. I do not write sloppy. I don't leave anything out. If I don't have a detail, I go look it up right there. You know, I make it and I cycle back into the thing. And and so I'm going over the words two or three times, but it's in creative voice. And so when I get to the end, I'm done. Then I turn on my spell checker. And I spell check it. That's my second draft. So when I go out in public or in something like this, that's I'm a two-draft writer there. Then I give it to my first reader, only one first reader, this whole idea of a committee of beta readers. I don't know where in the world that came from. But uh, you know, it's one of the dumbest things I've seen come out in indie publishing is, oh, I've got my beta readers. And I always know, oh, that person's doomed because they're, you know, they're literally writing from, com- from committee again. And then I take what my, write, my first reader is Chris. And she's, you know, one Hugo's and everything for her editing. Okay, so I've got a really good first reader. I ignore half of what she says. We're just different writers. Mm -hmm. You know, I I go through and go, yep, no, no, I'd never do that. Why would I do that? (laughs) And so my spell check draft takes me about 30 minutes for a novel. And my put in Chris's corrections probably takes another 30 minutes. That's my third draft. And then I give it then I give it to a, a publisher like WMG. And then, you know, and that's it. And then they, of course, do the copy editing and everything else like that. So that's it. No, and I, and I think that's the way you describe that. I think some people think like, oh, you just write and then you don't look and you just, it's just oh, no. junk, you know, I, but you're, I, mean, I cycle you, back. Yeah, I cycle back all right, the time. Right. You're yeah. having clean, clean drafts. Clean. And, I, I make sure it's as clean as I can get it. When I hit the last word, it's done. 
Um, and that's when my, my little two-year-old, my creative voice, that's when it checks out. Mm-hmm. It no longer cares anymore because it told its story. Right. And so it doesn't, want, it doesn't want to be bothered by this story anymore. Mm-hmm. So it checks out, and that's why I only do the spell check and, and the, the stuff that, that I agree with that Chris says. Mm-hmm. And that's nothing more. Well, and I think what I see with, with beginning writers is when they think about rewriting, you know, they're, a lot of times it's not even necessarily characters and scenes and things. It's like they obsess over, well, this, I could use this word instead of that word or that, you know, and, and that was what happened to me. And after I started reading some of your stuff, I did, I actually did NaNoWriMo and I did a, I did a draft or I did actually a whole story in 21 days of 50,000 word mm-hmm. um, Super. and handed it off to my editor and he's like, this is really good. Like, I mean, there's not a whole lot here that I need to change, but what I did was I did what you said is do the cycling, you know, go back in. Um, and it, it took a little more time, but by the, but by the time I was done, I wasn't so frustrated with the actual story because if you just go straight through and you're not looking at what you're doing and it's the editing and is horrible. I mean, it's just, oh. it just gets you out of it, you know, and you're like, this is trash. <laughs> yeah. And you have to, and you do come at that. The, the job of the critical voice in all of us is to keep us from jumping off a cliff. You know, I mean, that's, that's our, that's our critical voice. It's our protective mechanism as a human animal, you know? And so, you know, it's like, Oh, you shouldn't do that. Well, you should well, the problem is, is when you get that critical protect mechanism attached into your writing, into the creative art of telling a story, then it, then it, all it wants to do is try to protect you. And so it tries to dumb everything down and it makes everything plain. And it, it's like taking a beautiful rock and throw it in a polisher. By the time you're done, it, you, you just have, a, it's just a polished rock. It just looks like every other polished rock. And editors, I'll tell you, as an editor, still now with Pulp Alice and other stuff, um, I can see a polished story a mile away. They, they're an automatic reject. It's just because they're just, they're just going to be exactly like everything else. Um, and you can spot them. Boy, I'll tell you, you can spot them. It's really, it's, it, you know, so if your readers out there are listening and you're polishing the death and wondering why you're getting form rejections, stop. <laughs> let, your true, let your true voice, what makes your stories unique, let it stay in there. The problem with your personal voice, you can't see it. Um, it's the dull stuff to you because your voice inside your head is dull to you. Mm-hmm. So you think, oh, I should take that dull stuff out. Well, what you're doing is taking your voice out. Mm-hmm. And so just leave it in. Leave it alone. That's good. Just tell writers, just write it, make it clean, and leave it alone. Mm-hmm. And, and then write the next story. Yeah. Make, your, make, your, make your little two-year-old creative voice happy by writing another story. Yeah. That's I love your perspective on that because you you keep saying that you just you know stop again polishing the turd and just write the next thing. I mean stop yep. try, thinking this is the next American novel, you know, great novel. It's like just move on. Like it's just a story. It's just words. Just get over it. You know, yeah. like I mean, and <laughs> one one of the real secrets you don't know until you've got thirty and forty years under your belt, <laughs> and this is this sort of a sad secret, but you don't know. The stories that you think, wow, that's going to be one of my best ones, nobody pays any attention to. The story that you just dinged off in a couple hours and you thought was crap and you believe it's crap and everything else, that's the one that wins all the awards and gets you all the attention. And so I always know when Chris hands me one of her stories, because I'm her first reader, and, and if she's muttering about, oh, this is just awful, it doesn't work, it's boring, I usually know it's going to be an award winner. It's just, and but you only know that after a lot of years Mm -hmm. and having a lot of and and having the guts to put out stuff that you think doesn't really work 
but you've released it into the wild and let the readers decide if it works or not. Um, and that's that's, that's really the key. That's good. I've heard you say, too, when you're writing in that creative voice, kind of that you, you say we're just natural born storytellers. And so it's that yep. subconscious. Like we just have to trust that that storytelling thing is just there. Like let it let it do its thing. <laughs> you know, like you yeah. said, the little two year old, just let it let it tell the story. Stop messing with it. Yeah. And, you know, story. Right. You've been you've been you've been absorbing stories since you were, you know, your parents read to you. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's that's the, the thing. We all know story. Where we get what happens is when I say get out of your own way is when you start bringing the English teachers and all of the the workshops and all of that you know the books you've read you start bringing that in instead of just trusting that you know story tell the story and get out of your own way leave it alone and move on and I have on over my writing computer to this day I have a sign and it is it is three words trust the process. Trust the process. It's right over my com- my writing computer, and it has been up there for years. Just trust the process. That's good. So uh, w- another myth that I think is is especially apropos to this show, and a lot of our we've had writers on here that have that have written hundred books and you know twenty nine books in a year and just craziness. But but you you talk about speed writing fast is bad. So so unearth that myth because a lot no. of writers have written very you know, quickly, <laughs> fast, if you will. And, and some of them have run Nobel peace, you know, Nobel literature awards and things. Uh, so talk a little bit about that. Well, it came, it came out of the 1890s is where the origin of this whole thing started. Um, because the pulps were coming up, the pulp magazines and uh, the illiterati, the people who were rich um, needed to try to pull themselves away from those masses that were reading those those magazines with the garish covers and all of that stuff into the into the earth. and there were some articles in some literary newspapers and stuff and some different stuff that started this whole thing about you know well only the good books are written slow and labored over and and have to you know and you have to work at see I never use the term work when I talk about writing <laughs> because work is not writing I sit alone in a room and make stuff up I mean, that's not work. Uh, digging a ditch is work, but you know that's just not work. And so I never call my writing work. I call it you know fun. And so this whole attitude about back in the 1890s came out, and it split literature into the two parts: the English department part, and then the the commercial fiction part. And the commercial fiction part, the English people never thought anything coming out of commercial was worthwhile in its day. Of course, the people in the English departments now study the bestsellers of the old days that were commercial, <laughs> which I find fascinatingly, you know, hypocritical. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's one of those things where you just, they have to make up these stories because they have to have something to tear apart and to look at. And if, if they, they can't convince their students that if they tell the, the students, oh, yeah, this, this writer wrote this in, in nine days while an editor was sleeping on his couch because he was late for a magazine deadline and it won the Pulitzer, um, then, you know, they can't make the students feel like there's value. <laughs> also, the problem is, is readers, when they're spending eight or nine dollars, they want to feel like the author has struggled with this story to give them the best story. They don't want to know that the author did that in a week. 
Um, you know, and so, you know, it, it's one of those things where most readers pay no attention, which is good for my work. <laughs> they, they pay no attention to how fast only the writers pay attention to how fast I write. Right. See, the, my readers don't care. They, they're just happy there's another book. Right. Um, and so, you know, th- that's the thing is, is it's come out of this literature. And the problem is, is we were all born and raised into this. Um, you know, we were all raised in and came through schools where we had teachers telling us this stuff and the society. I mean, I have people walk up to me now that don't really know me, but know me as a writer. And they'll say, how's your book going? Uh-huh. You know, how do I answer that question? The one this week, the one last <laughs> week, the one next week, which book are you talking about? You know, uh, it, see, that's, it's just, it's that kind of, it's in our culture. And so it's impossible to fight. So what I tell writers is don't tell people how fast you write, unless you're an idiot like I do that write out in public you know, or you're doing it on your own blog for you know for your fans and stuff, so that they can say, "Oh, when's that next book coming?" Um, try to keep that to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> it's just safer because right. you, it's a myth that it's a myth you can't fight. You right. know, I've tried and tried, and there's there's no there's nothing you can't fight it. Right, right. You, no, you got to get past it as a writer, but you can't fight it with your audience. That's what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's good, and and I think you know I've I've you know read quite a few of your books too, and 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 you write great stories, and and I think this leads into another myth because um, what I love about your writing too is that you have decided you know I'm going to write what I want to write, and one of the things you talk about is writing what is hot. So you know, oh, especially God. in our day, I mean, it's like whatever the faddish you know genre is, that's what I'm going to write. You know, the next. Harry yeah. Potter wannabe or, you know, whatever. Um, but you write, you know, all kinds of, I mean, you write mysteries, you write thrillers, you write time travel, you write sci-fi, you write, you know, you name it. Um, talk a little bit about that, the danger of writing just what is hot or what's current or what's popular. Oh, it's, ex- it's extremely dangerous because what that does, unless you're lucky enough that you are passionate, I mean, really passionate about an area and it happens to be hot, then you're lucky. Um, but you know, um, I haven't had that luck happen to me <laughs> over the years. I just, cause my stories are kind of twilight zone-y. I mean, I wrote a lot for the twilight zone. I wrote, um, you know, that kind of thing. And, and my stories are always sort of down cracks down between genres. And the, the key is, is that if you try to write to a market, um, and what happens is the subconscious shuts down. And the critical, the creative voice says, I don't want to do that. I don't want to, do, you know, just think of a little two-year-old that you're trying to force to do something. Those of you who've had two-year-olds in your family, mm-hmm. um, just just watch a two-year-old that somebody's trying to force them to do something they don't want to do. Well, that's what's going on in your head. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to write that. I don't want to write that. You know, and boy, I'll tell you, it just, then, then writing becomes work. That's when writing truly becomes work, when you're forcing yourself. I learned early on, even writing media and everything else, that I never took a project I didn't want to write, um, ever. I, I, I took a couple projects I said, oh, that's good money, I'll do that. And then, oh, it was so torturous. Um, and finally, I and so I learned that lesson the hard ways. But I mean, I, I grew up watching Star Trek, you know, when I was in high school, and I'm a Star Trek major fan, and I'm a major fan of but I, one day, Kevin Anderson called me and said, Dean, you want to write? You, you were a bartender for a lot of years. You want to write the bartender story for the tales from, uh, of Mose Eisley? You know, that bar that they went into in the original Star Wars? Because he was editing an anthology of Star Wars stories, and he thought I could write the bartender story the best. <laughs> and I went, sure, I'd love that. <laughs> I hate Star Wars. <laughs> I hate Star Wars. I couldn't write a short story. 
I mean, I literally, finally, I just picked up phone and called Kevin and said, Kevin, I've struggled with this for two weeks. I can't do it. Um, you know, Dave Bischoff, can, he's a Star Wars fan. He'll do it. And so, you know, passed it off to Dave, and Dave wrote it. But uh, I just literally, I, my, my little creative voice said, nope, you hate this world. Nope, you're not writing in it. And it just shut me down. It just shut me down. But if it had been a Star Trek, I'd have been fine, or Spider-Man, or Men in Black, or the things I love. I no issue at all. I loved writing those books. I just loved it. No, I think I think that's really helpful advice because I, I, again, I, you talk almost always, and you you probably know you're doing this, but when you write a like even a blog post, you always at the end you always say make sure you're having fun. And, and exactly, I, and I think like you're saying we're not digging ditches. Like if it's not fun, if it's not, if you feel like. Well, you know, paranormal romance is really popular. I better write a paranormal romance, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. And you just yeah. begrudgingly sit at the, you know, who's who? And most of us work jobs, and it's like, who has time for that? <laughs> you know, I mean, you exactly. you want to write what you like to write and see where it goes, you know. And I think, that, yeah. and, and you can, I mean, you're the pro, so you can tell me. But um, I find too that when you write a story, sometimes, like I was writing this this story about this hotel anyway it's a long story but Mm -hmm. but what i thought was going to be just a straight kind of crime mystery thing it ended up having a supernatural element but that wasn't like that wasn't like a plan i mean that was yeah that was just where the story needed to go yeah it's just like all of a sudden i'm like yeah just go yeah i just gotta go there and you just go there that's that's the fun it's also see there's there's a difference here between work and drudgery and the 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 panic and the fear of oh my god that's going the wrong way okay well let's see where that goes type of thing and the unknown okay the way I describe it is a roller coaster you know that the roller coaster in you hope is going to come back to platform but what's going to happen along the way are twists and turns and thrills and fear and everything else and to me that's what writing a book is it's Okay, here we go. Let's climb this first one and see where this baby twists and turns and and goes. And it's just a thrill ride. And some days when you get up from the computer, you're like, "Oh my god, I have no idea. I've ripped myself into a corner. I got no idea." You know, and that's part of the like the roller coaster ride. Where's this going? What am I going to do? And you just trust the process. Sit down, write the next sentence, and then write the next sentence. And eventually, your characters just will tell you where it's going to go. And that's off great. it goes. That's great. So another great myth that I you love to talk about as well, and is you can't make a living with your fiction. Um, and, <laughs> and you talk obviously you've made a living with your fiction for thirty plus years. Um, yep. And so so talk a little bit about that, where that myth comes from. Um, and I don't remember if you remember this story, but it was one I I I've just kind of hidden away. And it was I think you were at a writing conference, and you had everybody kind of raise their hand. Um, they were trying to debunk that nobody, you know, nobody makes a living, you know, writing fiction. There's like five people in the world. And then you kind of had everyone (laughs) raise their hand and kind of debunked it right there in the conference. Um, but talk a little bit about that, kind of where that comes from. Um, you know, what are different ways that people are making a living? You know, is that true? Is that just something that people say, go for it? Oh, oh no, it's, it's so far from true. It's, it's ridiculous. And especially in the indie world. Oh my heavens. There's so many writers making really, really good money. In the indie world, it's far more than there even were in traditional. In traditional, there was there was thousands and thousands of us making a living, um, but you don't see us. You don't see a lot of us. You know, I mean, that's the thing. I've been on every major 
um, bestseller list, including the Times, but they were under pen names and other stuff like that. So I claim USA Today, but even that, you know, you don't see us. You don't see writers like me who are the workers, who are the people who are the storytellers. We're everywhere. We're just everywhere. And um, um, it, it's, it just adds up. The key is, is there's lots and lots of cash streams. Unless you're writing for New York and you're only getting the two checks a year, you know, then, then you can't make a living. You've got to have multiple cash streams, multiple ways of going. I will say right now, for anybody who's saying, well, yeah, but he teaches. And he, I don't make a nickel off of any teaching. I make yeah, nothing, not a not an ounce, not a nickel. WMG, I do that for WMG. WMG keeps all the money. Chris and I are not employees of WMG. We sell our work to them, but they often don't pay us for it and end up owing us notes at the end of the year. Um, you know, we don't make any money from anything but our writing. And, um, and that's just the way we've always wanted to keep it. Um, when I go out and teaching at a conference or something, I only ask for expenses. I never ask for any money. Um, yeah, I just I just want to stay. It's sort of a private, stupid thing, but there's a lot of writers who can also make good money by these ancillary ways, by doing a little teaching, by you know things along the side. Um, but most there's so many writers that make a living. It's just math. Excuse me. It's just math. Again, you always fall back to the math of you're making, you know, selling a, 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 a ten or twenty copies of a book, and you only have one book you're not making a living. Uh-huh. But if you're selling 10 or 20 copies a month of one book and making $4 each on those, and you've got 100 books, now you're making a living. Uh-huh. And see, that's the difference. And, and so that's where this prolific has come back in. Um, there's no gatekeepers to slow us down. So if you're prolific, if you're writing more than one book a year, you're going to make a living. If you can you know, write four or five or six books a year and some short stories, and some other nonfiction stuff, and just keep it going. You won't make it on the first year. You won't make it on the fifth year. But here's here's what I tell people. You say, I want to make a living as a lawyer. Okay, you come out of high school and you say, I want to make my living as a lawyer. When are you going to make your living as a lawyer? Well, you're going to spend a whole mess of money for seven years to get through school, and then you're probably going to maybe make a living if you go get hired by somebody, but if you hang out your shingle, it'll be two or three more years before you make a living. That's And writers have to hang out a shingle. So it takes that long. And, and, and everybody in this modern world is in a hurry. And so I'm always trying to say, just, just give it a few years. Give it a few years. But we've had so many good friends and writers that have come in that are fantastic writers. They get all in a hurry. They quit their day job. They think they're going to make money. And then they have to go back to their day job, and then they quit writing because they're discouraged. Uh-huh. And it's just sad to see, and you can't say, you know, hey, you're on a 10-year plan or you're on a 7-year plan. That's a piece of advice that writers do not want to hear from me. Uh-huh. But I can't not say it because it's the truth. You know, you just just give it time. Build up the inventory. Uh-huh. Refresh the inventory as you go along regularly so it continues earning money. And um, you do that and write a decent amount of books and you'll make a living. No, that's really in this good. Modern world. That's really good. I, case in point, I, I was uh, at a writer's workshop about an hour from where I live and they brought in some, some authors uh, to help us and coach us and 
teach us and things. And it was amazing to talk to these authors. I mean, they're making full-time livings and you've never heard of them. I mean, and, exactly. And, and so I think that's the thing, you know, with writers, you know, they're not on TV. They're not, you know, famous in that way, but it's like, she's like, yeah, I've been writing for 25 years and made a, making a full-time living. And you know, you're like, who are yeah. you? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and well, I've, I, been, I've been writing for 40, 45 years now or something like that. Right. And a lot of your listeners will go, who the heck is Dean right. Wesley Smith? Right. <laughs> and that's what I wanted them to expose. And they prob- be exposed and to. probably read some of my books. I, co- I consider right. myself probably one of the best read unknown writers because mm-hmm. I've got 23 million copies of my books in print. <laughs> but chances are you wouldn't have realized you were reading one of my books when you were reading it. Right, right. And that's that's the fun part. Right. And I thought, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey w- w- was awesome. So that was your yeah. book, right? <laughs> no, 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 just kidding, no. just kidding. And I didn't, and I didn't do. And for the longest time, they were talking about the uh, when, when I was going to science fiction conventions. I was so well known for doing novelizations and ghosting and stuff like that that uh, um, people were saying, "Oh, the Tolkien movie's coming out. Are you going to do the novelization, Dean?" <laughs> you know, it's just like, no, I'm not, and I didn't. Um, but you know, it's just that's the kind of thing that that I did a lot. You know. That people didn't, you know, my name might be down there, but it was down in tiny print or it was under a pen name. I mean, I have a best-selling thriller series that is under a pen name that I'm not even allowed to speak of. So I don't write books for it anymore because I don't write for traditional, but they're still in print and they're still selling like crazy. That's great. Who knew? Who knew? That's great. Um, yeah. So uh, let's let's add one more piece to this um, that you talk a lot and you've mm-hmm. actually written a whole book. I don't know if it's if the book's out. I think it is. Uh, your Magic Bakery. So that's your favorite little thing to talk about, about making a living. And so talk about how, you know, this idea of kind of cutting up your, your work into different pies and different, you know, how you really make money. I mean, there's a million ways to do it. And sometimes we, yeah. we think too nearsightedly, if that's a word. Um, so no, that's exactly, probably exactly right. Um, um, uh, the Magic Bakery is a way to try to make the, um, the world of copyright palatable. <laughs> for because writers just hate i mean we we don't we don't sell things we license copyright mm-hmm. and that's all we do and when we create a short story or create a novel you have created a piece of property and it's just it's just like you went down on the corner and built a building you've created a property and writers don't realize that they don't value it they don't understand it and so basically i started early a numbers of decades back started calling uh, copyright like a story a pie and then i'd say now imagine a pie and you're going to cut that pie and you're going to take out the little slice over here and sell it to a magazine and guess what that slice is back there it's just magic it reappears because you can then sell it to another magazine and then you can sell it to another magazine on reprint and you can do this and and you can sell all these little teeny slices bob Aspern came up to me one day and um robert lynn Aspern, and that you know the um, myth worlds and all of those and he came up in a convention. He was all excited. He had just sold the 37th gaming right on one of his books. And I looked at him like, how the heck did you slice it that thin? And he started listing off all the types of the gaming and the, the little pieces that he had sold. And he had sliced that gaming part of his, one of his novel or a series of his novels down so fine that he'd sold 37 different slices. And, and that's the, you're, that's what you, you were exactly right about nearsighted. Writers don't realize that what we really can do to get cash streams going is this copyright that we own on all of these stories property is just unbelievably valuable and it's magic. It keeps coming back to us. If you don't do something stupid, like sell it to New York and sell all rights. Um, 
then then you keep it in your and then the bakery of course is what i try to tell writers on this is they're kind of disappointed that their second book didn't sell very well and i'll say okay imagine this you walked into a bakery that had a beautiful sign it was well done professionally done and you walked in and there were all these empty shelves and there were two pies sitting on the shelf what would you do as a customer you turn around and walk out you know, just because you walked into an empty store. And I said, right now, your store is empty. You've only got two two novels. You have nothing in your store. Um, you know, they, they're not, you're not going to get customers to stay. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the magic bakery part of it is. You have these magic pies that are copyright that you can slice into a billion pieces. And you name them. You, you know, there are no naming conventions anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, you have to agree in contract with somebody else what the name is. But otherwise, you can call it anything you want. I'm going to take this piece and sell it to you. And if somebody else says, okay, I want that piece and gives you money, then you've sold it. But then you have to have a lot of work, a lot of pies in your bakery before it becomes a viable business. Mm-hmm. And then you can start making a living off your business. Mm-hmm. So, And you, you also – and correct me if I'm wrong if this is related to this conversation is – you talk also about not putting all your books into, you know, exclusively in Amazon or exclusive of anything. No, because I no. think you know you have. Let's say you have ten books. Um, you got, but but then you have you know can, you have electric or like electric electronic. Electronic. You print audio, you know whatever yep. on one book, and then you do that ten times over. You know that's yep. how many pro. I mean that's thirty products right there. But then you put it in. Yep. 10 different stores and all of a sudden you got another channel, another channel, another channel. So I think the, some of the yep. ne- nearsightedness is the idea that you could have 90 different, literally products that people could buy on 10 books, you know, let's say. Exactly. And exactly. Rather than and around the, around the world, around the yeah, world. Yeah. 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 Around the world. Um, the problem with Kindle select, which is what we're talking about here is, is that there's two major problems with it. Um, number one, it shuts off the rest of the world. All the readers who do not like Amazon or who are not would ever think of going into that pile in Kindle Select, um, which is a vast, vast number of people around the world. Writers who go in there don't realize how many readers there are in the world. Mm -hmm. They go in there for this short-term kind of thinking, and then they stay in there. The other problem with Kindle Select is that it's it's not sales. Um, when, when, When I sell a book on Kindle, or on Amazon, I mean on Amazon, or on Kobo, or on Barnes & Noble, or on, you know, any of the ones around the world. When I sell a book, someone pays money, and they get either, they get a license to read the book, or they get the physical copy of the book. Okay, that's what they get. Well, when the writer has page reads in, 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 the, in the select program, that's Amazon paying them a bonus. Mm-hmm. There's, there's nobody buying their book. And uh, the, that person probably got it for free as one of their, their prime, you know, discount memberships. Mm-hmm. And so it's Amazon paying the writer. And that means the writer is at Amazon's, <laughs> as we've seen over the last three years, they can change the rules at any point yep. and often do. And, uh, and, and then writers, entire writers who are doing something in the system are vanished off the planet. Mm-hmm. I see. My goal is I'm, uh, you know, and I want to try to help writers be writers ten years from now. Mm-hmm. Amazon is the is literally the best way to make readers angry. Why would you make readers angry? Imagine one of your books started getting good word of mouth, which you want. 
and people start looking for your book. And you've got it jammed over there in Amazon Select. And so all the Barnes & Noble readers, all the Kobo readers, all of this, they can't find your book. Mm-hmm. And they're now angry. They're not going to buy any more of your books because they can't find it. All right. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, Uh-oh. I, I actually, you know, I, I, I used to push against you. I mean, not you, you know, metaphor- yeah, metaphorically. Yeah, and, and like, well, you know, I'm not really selling anything on any, anywhere else. What's, you know, what's the point? And I literally got three emails from my mailing list. Um, that they were literally saying, "Oh, maybe someday I'll I'll get your book when you put it somewhere else than Amazon." You know, and I just I, it like hit me like a ton of bricks. I was like, "Oh my gosh! Like, what am I doing?" I mean, there yeah. are literally people that just pass you by and go, "Well, yeah, he's on Amazon. Sorry, I I, I do Kobo, or yeah. I'm I'm in Canada, or I'm in the UK, or I'm, you know, yeah. or I I just don't do Amazon. You know, I do Barnes and Noble, I do whatever." Um, no, I think there's just a lot of wisdom there, and I think there's just so many more opportunities that that writers don't realize they have. It's a slow growth again. Yeah. When you're in a hurry, these writers who are in a desperate hurry to make a lot of money will run over into select, and they're right. risking everything, right. and 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 they're risking losing and alienating readers. My attitude is: go slow, build your build your inventory in your slow in your store, and get it out so that you have fans and readers all over the world. Who are paying money directly for your product, mm-hmm. not having Amazon pay you for your product. They're paying money directly for your product. Mm-hmm. And when you start doing that, those are real readers. Those are the real fans. Those are the ones that you build one at a time. Mm-hmm. You build a fan base one at a time. Mm-hmm. And that's and it's just and it's slow. There's there's no there's no speed in this business. <laughs> you know? Yep. You can write books fast, but you gotta build your business slow. Mm-hmm. So this is a good segue because I, I've just I get frustrated with this one too, um, just because I see so many posts on you know keyboards and online and it just drives me nuts. But oh. you, ha- you have to sell books quickly. Yo no. no. So so everyone's you know losing their marbles because they only sold a hundred copies you know the first year and they're not you know now they have to go sleep in the car or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. So talk a little bit about that, like this idea that you know you got to sell a thousand in the first month or your book's a failure. That's old. That's old thinking. It had to be that way because of the traditional world, and the traditional world's still thinking that way. It's called the. It's called produce. It's the produce um, method. Um, when when you have a a large group of bananas, um, it has to get to the shelf and sell fairly quickly. Otherwise, it just rots, and they have to throw it away. Mm-hmm. Well, that's how traditional publishing works. Uh, up until just lately, they're slowly starting to change, but they didn't up until just the last few years. But their attitude is is that they have to sell the book quick, otherwise the book's worthless, mm-hmm. and uh, and and they throw it away, and it gets re- you know it gets returned, it gets recycled, it's just done, and so that's the produce model. And traditional publishing functions still mostly to this day on the produce model. They don't function on the I'm going to have a long tail is what it's called. Basically, I'm going to sell, be able to sell this book and let it grow over decades um, versus I'm going to, I have to sell a thousand copies and then it'll be trashed. Um, it, doesn't, it just doesn't work that way anymore now in this modern world because readers aren't in a hurry anymore. Where in the old days, publishers would hype up these books. You'd have to get it on. And if you missed it in the bookstore, you probably missed the book. And you'd have to go find it in a used bookstore somewhere, you know, all that. But now with online shopping and with all of this and with electronic books, readers are reading books when they want to, not when they think they have to buy them. 
And that's the old, that old produce model is just about gone. It's going to be gone as soon as the traditional publishers weed down a little bit more. That produce model will be gone, and we'll all be switched over to the long-term model. And that is where you want to have consistent, decent sales to start, maybe five or ten copies even. It's a nice, solid start. And then the next month it sells ten, and the next month it sells fifteen, and then you kind of refresh and keep it going. And have it build slowly over long as word of mouth gets out. And as people are reading your series, say you you got the first book in a series out, write the second book. That will sell the first book. You know, the old saying is your best promotion is your next book. Um, and um, it just it's just got to be slow. But that old method of thinking if you got to sell books quickly, that's that's thinking of your book like it's a bunch of bananas that are going to rot. Mm-hmm. Your book's not going to rot. Your, you know, books, books, as I said in a whole bunch of posts, books don't spoil. Mm-hmm. They good. just don't. That's true. I don't know if you use this number, but I, for some reason it sticks in my head. But, you know, you said something about like 25 books, you know, sales a month on average over, you know, you got 100 books or you got 50 books or 30 books mm-hmm. on multiple channels, sales channels. You know, that's how you're going to make a living. And I, I think, again, that's, you know, I think you, you get into almost all the other myths myths when you, you know, you're, I got to polish this thing. I got to better cover, better editing, better this, better that. And you got this one yeah. thing rather than like you're saying, write the next one, write the next in the series, yeah. write the next two in the series, you know? Yeah. Um, it's, this is also advertising, standard advertising, standard product for outside of publishing and normal. You have to have discoverability channels uh-huh. and how is, how are readers going to find your work if you've only got one thing sitting out there like a little island or t- five things or ten things, they're not, they, they've only got those, those – they got very few entrances to find it, to stumble on it, to, to run into it. And none of us in the indie world have enough money to go for the big ads and you know, an Entertainment Weekly and all that sort of stuff. So the readers have to stumble on us in some way or another. And find us and, and do also bots and look down at the also bots and the Amazon ads and, you know, and things like that. So one of the things that you do is you have more and more product, which is why short fiction is such a good thing for you to do, because those are entry points. So someone reads uh, uh, one of my wife's uh, novellas in Asimov's. You know, I mean, she just put a full novel in Asimov's, for heaven's sakes. But you know, she normally sells them novellas or short stories. And so they read one of her stories and go, oh, I really love this. I wonder if she's got more. And they go online and find her work. Does that make sense? Uh-huh. And so it's just you just need to you need to use all the channels for discoverability and have as many things as you can. That's why selling short fiction to the short story, major short story magazines is a really, really good thing. Um, I would do it if I didn't have my own magazine to fill every month. (laughs) But, you know, know, it's just it's just um, it's just a really good promotion. Uh You know, they'll, they'll find your stuff and it's good ads and. So as many channels as you can get, as many products as you can get, it gets the readers more and more chance to find that one that one reader to go, oh, I love this writer, and they, and they become one of your true fans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it, love it. Yeah, it's it's you know, case in point, go to you know half price books or some used bookstore and go look at Stephen King's you know section, and you'll yeah. see you know you'll see eighty books you know, a hundred books sitting there and it's like, okay. And there's, you know, another generation of even kids going, Oh, what's this it thing? What's this? You know, I yeah, exactly. came, came out in the, you know, books came out in the seventies, eighties, nineties, you know, 
Um, yeah. And your you know your books are evergreen. You know they're going to be yeah. out there forever. That's that's why we need to continue doing paper books mm-hmm. as indie writers uh, because and get the paper books out. If nothing else, just donate them to libraries mm-hmm. because then they'll put them in a book sale. You do, say you donate one of your books. Don't sign it. Don't tell anybody who you are. Just go into your library and donate a couple of your books in paper to the library. Well, the library is not going to put them on the shelf. Don't even think they're going to. You know, it's very rare that that happens. But what happens is libraries have these sales that you know of book sales that will um, benefit the library. And so someone in the book sale picks up your book and goes, "Oh, that looks interesting." Takes it home, reads it, pays the library a little money for it, reads it, and goes, "Oh, I wonder what else they've got." And goes online. Well, chances are that person, if they bought it from a library sale, is going to go online and go, oh, and they're going to buy more of your books. Well, what happens if they buy more of your paper books? They come in, and that person donates them back to the library, and somebody else does, and the whole it's this wonderful cycle of life of paperbacks. And that's, that's what indie writers now have to start into realizing, is that we as writers are missing a giant opportunity if we're not getting our... I, it always pleases me. When I walk into a, into a, a used bookstore and I see one of my books sitting on a shelf, I, or, or a number of them, especially WMG books that have been the last 10 years, I'm so excited about that because that means a reader will find that book eventually, take it home, and I may need to get another fan. Hmm. See, those are, those are free advertising. They're on the shelves in used bookstores. Hmm. They're on the shelves in library shelves, sales. That's just heaven. That's just heaven for our new world of discoverability. Oh, that's great. That's really smart. I, I like that. Um, so... Uh, I'm going to do one more and then um, we'll, we'll close up our time. I want to be sensitive to your time because you got to go write four novels before the night's out. So, um, <laughs> Oh, I don't, I don't start till midnight here. Okay. So no okay. All right. Um, the, here's one I love. And your wife has talked about this too on a numerous occasions is you must sell books cheaply. Talk about that. Oh no. You sell them reasonably. Um, it's reader pricing. Um, you know, you can, what we suggest people do is, is you never, never, ever do an, uh, a, a, an ever free and ever, whatever that's called, mm-hmm. you know, where a book is free forever. Don't ever do Perma-free. that. Perma-free. Yeah. Perma-free. And the, what I say is never put a free book on a bookshelf. That means never allow it in Amazon to be free. Never allow it in Barnes and Noble. Those are bookshelves. Mm-hmm. Never allow a book to be free on a bookshelf. It always has to cost something. The problem is, is that that you don't want it priced too low because then you can't do any bargain. You can't do any sales, like a one-week sale on this book or anything else. There is a little exception to that, and that's the first book in a big series. You know, you should price your first book in a big series lower. It's called book funneling. It's funneling in um, your readers into the series so they can get this one and go, oh, this is only two ninety nine. Oh, okay, the next ones are four ninety nine. You know, um, and and if they like it, they'll pay the four ninety nine. That's just good marketing but selling too cheap selling the that the old conrath thought of everything had to be 99 cents mm-hmm. luckily not even joe does that anymore <laughs> right, <laughs> just right. even he got past that he and i had a lot of arguments about that over the years um but it was you know and chris and i were just like no you you have to get value for your work even if you're a beginning writer value your work get it at the right level you can do a little research and say okay romances sell a little cheap cheaper than then mysteries do, and then science fiction does, you know, and so, you know, value your work, value it. Don't give it away. Never give work away, except for short-term uses. Like my, my wife gives a short story away for one week on her blog, and she's been doing it now for five and six years. Different story every week. 
And, um, and what always occurs, I'm not kidding, and it never fails, is that she has that free story up on her blog. And people go buy, this, buy the story. They, they, they can read it for free. And yet they'll go buy it. And she make, that story always booms because it's free in her blog. Neil Gaiman was on the New York Times bestseller list for a year and three weeks, I think, or something like that, with, with a book that for the entire time was free on his website. <laughs> I love that. So, yeah. Yeah, you, you, I think you talked about this too, and Chris, in another way, is, is you talked about, you know, when you go to a bookstore, you, you know, even just a store in general, you know, the discount bin, you know, yeah. the, the discount bin is like the stuff that didn't sell and it's, you know, it's on sale mm-hmm. for a, a particular time, but you don't want to do it with your books for, you know, indefinitely. No. Nope. Uh, you know, that, cause that kind of nope. says, you know, are they not valuable? Are they not, you know, what's wrong with them? <laughs> or, you know. Yeah, you're, you're devaluing your own work. Right. And, and that's not what you do. Even if you're not making hardly any sales early on, leave the price. Leave the price in in the right range. Learn what the right range is. You know, electronic is anywhere from three ninety nine to six ninety nine, depending on what the book is and what genre. Um, and leave it in that right range, and then value your work. And then once in a while, do a deal for one week only. You know, you know the advertising for one week only, or for this weekend only, and then then discount it at that point. Um, but or give it away on your n- newsletter. You know, for just your newsletter special people, make them feel special. Give them a four ninety nine book for free on your newsletter. That makes people like, whoa, cool. And they see they still value it even though they got it free because you're charging a regular price for it. You got to keep your the perception of the buyer has to be up to the point where it has value. You know, I charge two ninety nine for my short stories. I put them up all individually. I charge two ninety nine. Doesn't matter how short it is. Doesn't matter how long it is. My short stories are up for two ninety nine. On Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all those places. And you do paper too on short stories, right? I on some of them, and we're doing more again. Yeah, I did it for I did it for about a year and had a blast. Uh-huh. And uh, now with the advent of vellum, um, it's unbelievably easy <laughs> to, right. to put up to put a paper together. So we're going to go back and do do short stories. I'm I'm probably not going to do it because you know life's too short, and I did it for a year. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, you know, one of the employees up there could would, could start bringing my short stories back out in paper, which I would love. I would love, and we yeah. sell those for four four ninety nine for a short story, mm-hmm. yeah. and good. and they actually sell once in a great while. Yeah. A paper sells, which always surprises me. And mm-hmm. well, well and, and I think you're you're onto something too. And I, I did this with a few stories. Was even just having it in paper, it's just another part of your bakery. I mean, it's just it's yeah. it's more shelf space. It's more channels. It's it's not to clog up things, but it's also just to say, hey, there's there's more stuff here. I'm I'm here. You yeah. know, there's yeah. you're there's, here. You're real. Yeah, there's yeah. options. You know, you want yeah. it in audio. There's you options. want it in you know whatever. Um, yeah, there's also it's also there's a, an advertising um, baseline thing. It's called comparative marketing and comparative pricing. And what happens is when you, they click on and you've got all, like say you have all three states up, you have electronic, you have a paper, and you have an audio. Mm-hmm. Well, then what that is is that you say, like on one of my short stories, I have it at two ninety nine and four ninety nine for the paper. Well, the four ninety nine makes the two ninety nine look cheap. Mm-hmm. It's com- called comparative pricing. It's a standard thing in advertising throughout the world and in sales when you have compared. And that's why you walk into a discount store, like we have a discount mall here on the coast. And you walk in and you see the original price, seventy nine ninety five. You can get this for forty nine dollars. And I'm looking. I still don't want to pay forty nine dollars for that. But that comparative pricing of what it was versus what it is, 
you know, it, it, that's, and that's what Amazon, that's one of Amazon's, you know, brilliant things they can do that at times on Amazon. Mm-hmm. They comparative price. Right. Right. And if you use ACX for audio, your audiobooks are like $89. So <laughs> it, it works. <laughs> Often, yeah. It works really good. They're yeah, like, oh, I can get a digital for three bucks and audio's 58 bucks, you know, or whatever yeah, exactly. it is. But yeah, that's a little crazy. But, uh, no, I think that's really interesting because I, I, you know, with the book pricing, you know, it's funny. I mean, I found too, and just from a, like, if you're trying to make a living or trying to make some money, you know, you have to sell a lot of 99 cent books, compared, oh, yeah. you know, compared oh. to a four ninety nine book. I mean, that's, that's the reality. Like, you, yeah. you know, you you want all these, well, if I can sell a thousand ninety nine cent, well, you can sell, you know, a hundred for four ninety nine and make more money, you know? So, exactly. um, so and I think have, and have better fan and have better readers. Yes. And yes. Better fans. I, yeah. the free stuff, I get the worst yeah. reviews. I get the worst people. They're, they yeah. just want cheap stuff. They don't really care. It's like, oh, you know, they stick yeah. it on their Kindle. If you want, if you, if you want to guarantee bad reviews somewhere, yeah. yep. give it, give it to them for free. Yep. No, <laughs> it's I automatic. I totally agree. That's, yeah. It just kind of weeds out people. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but if they pay it, then they know that they either made a mistake mm-hmm. or they like it enough and they'll give you a better review. Mm-hmm. So, right. yeah. Well, hey, Dean, um, I uh, have enjoyed this tremendously. You have given us so much. um, And I wanted to – I always ask this question of our our interviewers, our interviewees, um, just kind of what – you know, advice you'd want to give to kind of a aspiring prolific writer and you've obviously given us so much, but, but what would just be one thing you just want to just say to, to those that are listening, those that are just starting out, those that have been going a while, people that are in between, you know, what would you want to say to them just as far as encouragement, wisdom, advice, um, just as we kind of wrap up here? Um, have fun. I think that's what I always tend to say to people. It's just, if you're not having fun, do something, do something different. Um, have fun. And and if if writing is not fun, then figure out why it's not. Mm. Stop and analyze your process. Analyze what you've learned, and then and then stop and listen. I, we do this in one of the workshops. One of the tests is um, where where did you learn that from? Who, who did taught you that that never wrote a book? <laughs> and usually, a lot of the stuff that we have learned as writers early on are from people that were not writers. You know, English teachers and workshop, other workshop people and things like that. And and so always listen to the long term and then the people who fit what you're doing and ignore everything that doesn't fit. Just ignore it and have fun. Try to figure out if you're not having fun, why writing isn't fun anymore. And if you make writing fun, if you write to your passion and write to the things you love, you're golden. You'll make it. And just keep doing it. Don't get in a hurry. Don't get in a hurry. Love it. Love it. So where can people find you? Where's the best place to find you? And, uh, and yeah, is there anything else you want to promote? Anything coming out no. soon? You can yeah. never oh. keep track, but I got, uh, yeah, I got, I got, you know, 27, 28 books this year so far. Um, I think, um, uh, Dean Wesley And, uh, yeah. And that's, you know, just Dean Wesley That'll get you to my, my goofy challenge that's going on this month. Um, which is writing four books this month, and I'm doing it in public and telling people what every day is like. Great. So and I so, I will it. mention I will mention that I I spent an hour here yeah. <laughs> on this. Yeah, 
Well, I'm, I'm excited so, to get into your blog. I'm, I'm going to feel really good about that. Uh, I, I've been following along, so keep at it. I know you've also been trying to train for a, a marathon, so keep yep. keep keep at that too. So that's yeah, great. I'm I'm an old guy trying to run. A, you know, the, the nice thing about being an old guy when you run is you can chances are you can place pretty high in your age group, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> there's not a lot of us, <laughs> right? Right. I love it. Well, hey, Dean, thanks for coming on. You're going to help a lot of people, and I'm so excited to get this out into the world. And uh, I hope to chat with you again and keep in touch. I uh, will do. And send me a link when you get it up, and I'll push it too. I will do it. Thanks, Dean. Have a good one. Okay. You too. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for stopping by the Prolific Writer Podcast. Please leave a review on iTunes so we can help more writers share their stories with the world. And head over to rockhousepublishing.com for books, resources, and other writing and publishing tips. See you next time. Thank you.